you will open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. And we will be starting off in verse 12. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And once you are there, you could stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now, even more, the report went out about him abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of tonight's sermon is Terminal. Uh, That obviously refers to the condition of the leper uh, before he encounters Jesus Christ uh, and has uh, experiences this miraculous healing. And uh, to really understand this miracle and the kind of entire account of Luke chapter 5, I would like to take a bit of time and introduction to survey all of chapter 5 and the direction and the flow with which Luke is uh, taking us. So if you remember, Luke introduced the first kind of personal healing ministry that Jesus does Uh, to Simon's mother-in-law. So Simon has this mother-in-law who's ill with a fever. This is back in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. And he heals her of her fever, and she is immediately healed and made well. And so he introduces this idea, or he posits to us this piece of evidence, that Jesus is a man who can heal people of things that no one else could heal them of. He heals this woman in a way that is immediate and total. But he's not going to leave the evidence with just someone being healed of a fever. Right? To be healed of a fever, we know that if you take the right kind of medicine and you give it enough time, even in today's context, you can be healed of a fever. So Luke, being a physician, knows that you know, people from time to time recover from fevers. So I'm not going to leave the evidence of just this one kind of healing. He's going to continue to advance the idea of Jesus' healing abilities through a series of accounts here in chapter 5. In the first account, which is the account we're going to take a look at tonight, you'll see Jesus healing a leper. Now, leprosy in the Bible refers to a broad range of illnesses and diseases, not necessarily Hansen's disease, which is what we know today as leprosy. But leprosy is something that in the Bible, at least, can be cured. Or it's not really curable. It's something that you can recover from. And we know this because in Leviticus 13 and 14, it outlines for us how you can be diagnosed with leprosy and how you can recover from over after a period of time, how you can potentially recover from that leprosy. So leprosy in scripture, at least, is posited as something that you could potentially recover from over time, but it's incurable. Fevers, you know, you can topically treat them, but leprosy is incurable. You might be able to recover. So he shows us Jesus healing someone from leprosy. And then he's going to go further and he's going to give us the account of Jesus healing a paralytic man, a man who is paralyzed. Now, I should not go to say this too far, but um, even today, we can't heal paralyzed people. No matter how far technology has advanced, we can't actually fix this disease even with our advanced state of technology in the 21st century. And so Luke is going to continue to advance this idea that Jesus is a healer, but he's a healer who doesn't just treat fevers. He's a healer who doesn't just treat leprosy. He's a healer who doesn't just treat paralysis, but he's a healer who's going to continue to do amazing things. And this culminates in Luke's gospel with the raising of a dead man to life. And Luke is going to continue to advance this idea in verse five, but there's, or, sorry, in chapter five. 
But there's another theme that overflows in chapter 5, and we're introduced to it really last week and more so this week, is Jesus' heart for those who are outcast from society. Jesus has a particular heart in his healing ministry for the people who the rest of society has dismissed as nobodies. We see that Jesus calls his first disciples to be fishermen. They are fishermen, they're tradesmen, they're blue-collar workers. He's not calling the scribes, the Pharisees, those who are best trained in the rabbinical schools to be his disciples. He's calling fishermen to come to him. And then in this account, a leper approaches him and he engages with the leper. He performs a healing miracle to this leper. And then he engages with a paralyzed man. And then he engages with a tax collector, Levi, and calls him to be his disciple. And all throughout chapter 5, Luke is advancing for us these kind of twofold ideas. Jesus is a healer, but he also has a particular heart for those who are outcast from society. And that is the broad overview, really, of what Luke is kind of advancing for us in chapter 5. And the reason I say all that is because as we dive specifically into verses 12 to 16, I still don't want us to lose the broader context of what Luke is telling us about who Jesus is. Now, with that being said, we can dive into these verses that we have this evening, that, the ones that we are uh, slotted for. And so we're going to start off in verse 12, and I want you to see with me a desperate man. Verse 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, it doesn't tell us which city Jesus was in at this time. It doesn't specify for us even which time period we're looking at. We can rightly assume that this is somewhere between the calling of Peter and the calling of Levi. It's sandwiched between those two events, but we don't know chronologically exactly when this happens. We don't actually really know what city this happens. We could speculate, you know, this is maybe in Capernaum, but we don't know for sure. Luke just tells us that he was in one of the cities. But the reason he says it that way is because if you remember previously in the conclusion of chapter four, Jesus says that I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. And now these separate accounts of Peter and the leper and the paralytic advance this idea that Jesus goes forth preaching the good news of the kingdom of God into these other towns. So while he's in one of these other cities, he encounters a man who's full of leprosy. And that term, full of leprosy, I I indicated earlier, leprosy is a broad term that could refer to a, a broad number of diseases in Bible times. Anything from what we would know today as like psoriasis to, like I said, the most extreme case would be Hansen's disease, which is leprosy that we would diagnose today as leprous. So leprosy in that case is, uh, it's curable, you know, if you treat it early enough, but it causes long-term damage to the skin, to the nerves, uh, to your ability to feel and sense pain. And really it's not a great diagnosis, it's not a great outcome, and it can cause a lot of disfiguration in the body. And the reason that it's probably likely that he has that kind of leprosy is because Luke doesn't just tell us that he has leprosy, he says that he is full of leprosy. Or, or if you like, he has full-blown leprosy. Or as I identified it, he has a terminal case of leprosy. He is, uh, he is desperately sick with this disease. This is not someone who has uh, mild problems and he's going to seek Jesus for, you know, uh, an assist in his life. He's looking to Jesus to radically change the condition of his life. He's full of leprosy. Now to understand what scripture teaches about leprosy, You need to understand that in this text, to a Jewish audience and to someone who's reading in the first century, this does not read how it does to us in the 21st century. For us, we don't really understand the significance of leprosy. But to someone who is a Jew and Jesus, who is a Jewish person, this would read in a very striking way because leprosy in scripture, at least in the book of Leviticus, is uh, synonymous with uncleanness. If, you'll, uh, if, you, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 13 to take a look at this. And as you turn there, uh, I want you to 
no, we're not going to read all of chapter 13. Uh, you're welcome. If you want to this week, I highly encourage you, uh, if you've never read Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, it will color in a lot of the context that sets place for these events that we're reading about today. But I just want to highlight one part of Leviticus 13, and we're going to be in verse, verse 45 of Leviticus 13. But all throughout Leviticus 13, he's giving us kind of the criteria for what qualifies as leprosy, what doesn't qualify as leprosy, what you are to do with someone who you might suspect of being leprous. And in verse 45, it reads like this. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and shall let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now that account in Leviticus 13 colors in for us a bit of what leprosy is to a Jewish person. It is not so much a physical affliction. Certainly it is a physical affliction, and we're not glossing over that to spiritualize this, but it is profoundly for a Jew more so a problem of spiritual significance. To be leprous is to be unclean. And to be unclean means you can't participate in the regular worship of Yahweh. You can't go into the temple and perform sacrifices. You can't participate in the communal worship with your uh, family and with your relatives. You can't participate in the general communion of the Israelite people. Actually, you can't even interact with people. If people come up to you and they're walking near you, you have to yell at them from a distance, unclean, unclean, diagnosing yourself to them. Because if they're in proximity with you, you could make them unclean. And that means they're going to have to go through a washing and a ritual and a period of time in which they won't be able to participate in the worship of Yahweh either. So for a Jewish person, to be leprous is to be unclean. And to be unclean is to be uh, profoundly uh, separated from the communion of God. If you, if you like, there's a, there's a good uh, analogy for this on the positive end, which is circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision is a sign of the, the covenant. And to be circumcised is to be marked as the clean group within, uh, within the rest of humanity. To be circumcised is to be set apart and to be considered clean. And if you are uncircumcised, that is a, a common term that is used for someone who is unclean, not part of this covenant community. And to be leprous is to be someone who is outside of this covenant community, someone who is marked unclean, and they're now part of that outcast group of the society. And so uh, to be leprous is to be unclean, and to be unclean is to be separated from the covenant community of God. And a leper would go their whole life, their whole experience, from the diagnosis till the time that that resolves, and maybe if it never resolves till their death, and they're going to go their entire life without having interactions with other humans who aren't also lepers. Their only interactions are going to be with other unclean people in the group. And notice they can't even dwell in the camp. So that in the wilderness, they're not even allowed to be in the protection of the rest of the group. They have to go outside of the camp. And so a, a leper is a complete outcast from the Israelite society. A leper is someone who, who can't go into the temple. They can't worship God. They can't interact with other Jewish people, lest they make them unclean. And now you have, in our encounter with Jesus today, a leper who is so desperate, so nervous, so afflicted, that he, uh, he goes to Jesus. He has to. He, he has no other choice. There comes a man to him full of leprosy. And if you ask the question, why is it that God would ordain for leprous people to be outside of the camp of Israel, there's one other Old Testament text that will color that in for us, and that's in Numbers chapter 5. So if you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 5, it's just a, a few page flips later. 
Numbers chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out from the camp anyone who is leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. So that's a whole group of unclean people. Verse 3. You shall put both male and female, putting them outside of the camp, that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and they put them outside of the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So when God explains to Moses the reason why they're supposed to go and put these people outside of the camp, it's profoundly not just a problem of their uncleanness, but the problem is that God has decided that Israel is a people for himself. They're a holy people set apart for his own possession. And he is a holy God. And they cannot be unclean and regularly interacting with other unclean peoples. And so the reason lepers are put outside of the camp of Israel is because God dwells with the people of Israel. And a leper dwelling with the holy God or in the camp of the holy God would make the entire group unclean. And that's a big problem for unclean people because God is holy. It's been well said many times in many different ways by many theologians that our primary problem in, in our life is twofold. It's not so much that we have a problem of being sinners. Certainly that is our problem. But the, the second part of that problem is that God is holy. See, being a sinner, being wicked, being unclean wouldn't be a problem if we did not worship and serve a holy God. But because we worship and serve a holy God, because God is uh, way beyond us, because he's perfectly just, because he's perfectly holy, because he's perfectly clean, that creates a huge problem for us who are unclean. We can't enter into the presence of God. We can't have relationship with God. And that's a problem for us. And the reason I, I take time to say that is because if you go interact with people outside of Christian circles, if you go interact with people, for example, on college campuses, which we try to do on a regular basis here, and you ask them general questions about what they perceive God to be like, generally people perceive God to be benevolent and tolerant of a great many evils. And so the reason I take time to stress this is because the Bible reveals God to not be tolerant of a great many evils. God is certainly gracious, he's certainly merciful, and we're gonna to get to that in the text. But the problem that sinners have is that God is holy and we are not. And that is a profound problem. We need to let the weight of that problem sit with us. Because to pretend like we don't have a problem is a problem. Mm -hmm. To pretend like we don't have a sin issue is a big re revelation about who we think God to be. We think of God as someone who will just get over it. But God isn't just going to get over it, okay? So let's turn back to the text in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And we're going to continue with the encounter of the leper with Jesus. And the leper sees Jesus and says, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face. And he begged him. The posture of the leper here is complete humility. He goes to God and he falls flat on his face. In Matthew's account, it actually says he worships God. He falls on his face and he begs or he pleads. This word can also be translated, he prays to him. And he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. The request or the petition of the leper is not like the request of the people in the synagogue. If you remember when Jesus is interacting with the people in the synagogue, he's teaching from the passage of Isaiah 61. And they say, if you want to back up what you claim to say, show us a miracle. Show us a sign to prove 
that you can do these kinds of things. This leper does not presume to tell, to question whether Jesus can or cannot do this thing. He doesn't say, I think you might be able to, but I want you to prove that you can do it. What he says is, if you will, you can make me clean. He has no question about whether Jesus can. He has a question about the willingness of Jesus to do so. Now that might sound like he's questioning the heart of Jesus, but what he's actually doing is he's doing a very humble petition and saying, I am unworthy of being cleansed, but I'm going to plead with you anyway to cleanse me. That, ma- that, that is a very important distinction. He's not, he's not questioning God's willingness to save him or to heal him. What he's doing is he's saying, I have no right or no claim or no grounds to say, you must heal me. He doesn't come to Jesus, you know, indignant with a, with a very haughty disposition and says, I'm leprous, you're part of the sovereign God, this God gave me leprosy, you better fix it. He doesn't come with this almost demanding disposition of Jesus, trying to tell him what Jesus ought to do for him. He comes flat on his face and says, if you will, make me clean. And that is a very humble disposition. That's a disposition that we can all learn from. And what you notice in this disposition is not only an awareness of his need, but also an awareness of his position before Jesus. He knows of his need. He knows of his great, profound need to be cleansed. Notice he doesn't ask to be cured of leprosy. He says, can you make me clean? Reflecting that he understands the condition of his leprosy. It's really about a spiritual issue that's going on here. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And now we're going to see then, the, after we've seen now the desperate man, we're going to see uh, a gracious God. In verse 13, you'll see with me, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. It's a simple reply. Jesus, with very little flair, with very little gusto, reaches out, touches him, and says that he is in fact now clean. And in that dynamic, that in that response, we get a little bit of the heart of God for sinful people. We get a little bit of the heart of God for an unclean person. The unclean person falls flat on his face, asking God to make him clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and says, be clean. Now that detail about Jesus touching him is significant. Jesus doesn't need to touch him to heal him. Jesus can simply speak and this man will be healed. Jesus can simply say the word and demons get cast out. So certainly he can just say it and the leprosy will be cleansed. But the point here in the text is that Jesus touches a leprous man. Someone who, if you touched in Leviticus 13 or 14, you are now also considered unclean. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. The first touch he's had from a, non, from a, le- from a non-leprous person in basically since his diagnosis, possibly his entire adult life. Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, I will heal you. Be clean. And in that dynamic, we have the gracious heart of God being revealed towards the unclean man. Jesus touches him. He heals him. And in doing so, he reveals what God's heart is for the people who approach him boldly, asking for the things that they know that they need. It would be quite a strange interaction if the leprous person walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, how's it going? And the leprous person goes, oh, no big deal. You know, I just, you know, just wanted to see how you're doing. I hear a lot about the great miracles that you do, you know, in the towns. And Jesus goes, yeah, I I do all those things. Uh, What can I do for you? And the leprous person goes, oh, you know, I don't have a problem. I don't have any issues. You know, I just wanted to come see the guy who everyone's talking about. 
and you know, have a great day. And he doesn't do that because he knows that to interact with Jesus is to interact with someone who can fix his problem. And it's not enough for us to look at Jesus, to marvel at the things Jesus does, and to say, wow, so significant that Jesus did that for all these other people. I've seen Jesus at work in all these ways. I see him at work in the scriptures here. But to never ourselves go to Jesus and recognize that we profoundly are in need of his healing work in us. And the leper doesn't cut corners and say things like, you know, I have a partial case of leprosy or I have, you know, this little ailment over here. He, he knows exactly what his problem is. And he knows exactly where to go and exactly who's going to fix it. And Jesus does. Jesus honors the request of this man who's not going to hide his sin, who's not going to cover it. You remember in Psalm 34, uh, David writes, or I think it's uh, Psalm 32, David says, I, I did not, uh, when, I, when I hid my sin, my bones wasted away within me. But I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And you have counted it a great joy to redeem me of my sin. The, the flight of the Christian, the plight of the Christian on a regular basis is to not be given into the temptation of trying to cover our own sin. It's to, it's to not shortcome uh, and to, to underplay the level in which we are sinful. If you remember the account of Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin against God, and they try to sew together fig leaves to try to make a covering for their now nakedness that they've recognized. And God comes to them and he looks at this poor opportunity of making clothing, and he has to kill an animal and cover them with the skins of that animal. And, they, and in recognizing their nakedness, they can come to God and get a covering. But when they try to sew their own fig leaves, they're trying to pretend like they don't have a problem. And, and you and I are much the same. We, we come to God with, you know, half-baked petitions of repentance. We come to God with half-baked requests for making ourselves clean when we have this long terminal illness that's present in our lives that needs to be eradicated that we simply won't address because that may be too much for God. But the question of the leper is not can God, it's will God and should God. And God reveals himself to be gracious in this moment. His, his heart is on display in the healing of this leprous person. The way I think it's well said is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to turn there and read from it. 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter says to the, the church, uh, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter explaining to the church that the thing that marks them from their old condition of life to their new condition of life is not them getting themselves together and figuring it out under the guidance and the wisdom of God. The thing that marks them from their old life to their new life is being called out of darkness and into light, to be set apart as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, and as a holy nation. That is the ambassadors for God on this earth. It says actually a people for his own possession, a people for God's particular enjoyment and for his particular inheritance. And the whole reason I stress that is because this leper, when he encounters Jesus, he does not come with 
Jesus to give him, you know, healing advice. And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, you know, go try these things and come back to me in a few weeks and see if they have cured your sickness. That is what we would call religiosity. People trying to work out their own sick problem by works. Jesus touches him and simply declares him to be clean. And that's profound because the leper didn't have to do anything. Jesus had to do everything in that encounter. The leper comes humbly on his knees petitioning God and God heals him and makes him clean. And you notice it's marked as a healing from God because it says, and immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately. His long-term illness, his terminal disease, immediately goes away. Think about Moses in the burning bush where he reaches his hand into his coat, he takes it out, it's leprous. And then he reaches his hand back in and takes it out and now it's clean again. God proving the fact that he has full possession and full dominion over the human condition and over all of the afflictions that sin can cause. And immediately he heals the leprosy. And we see the heart of a gracious God on display here in the text. And then in verse 14, you're going to see the curious command that Jesus gives to this person. He, and he charges him to tell no one. He says, but go, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. And now to understand that, you could turn with me again to Leviticus 14, and I'm going to ask you to do so. Leviticus 14, that second chapter. And I want to look particularly at verses 18 and verse 20 of that text in Leviticus 14. Because remember, Leviticus 13 tells us how to diagnose leprosy. Leviticus 14 tells us what you do after the leprosy has resolved. And Jesus, in accordance with the commandments of the law of Moses, is going to tell this leprous person to go and present himself to the priest. And this is a eight-day-long event. He goes to the priest. The priest sees him as clean. He shaves his head. He moves in. And at the end of seven days, he shaves his head again. And on the eighth day, he goes and he offers sacrifices to God. And the sacrifices are described for us there in verse 18. And then I'm going to start in the midway of verse 18. It says, Then the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make an atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. So a leprous person is healed of their disease, they're cured of their affliction, they're made clean, and now they go to the priest for a declaration of actually being clean. The priest, as the ambassador of God, is going to declare this person clean. And Jesus tells this leper that we encounter here to go and to adhere to those commandments. So he's telling him to not go anywhere else, go straight to the priest, present yourself to him, and go through this eight-day-long ritual in which you're going to offer sacrifices that are going to depict an atonement on your behalf to pay for your sin, to pay for your uncleanness, and to make you fully clean. And, uh, you can ask a lot of questions about why does Jesus do that. I think one of the more uh, interesting ones to think about is the priestly class and the leaders and teachers of the law are the people who have a problem with Jesus. We haven't encountered it yet, but in the next section, we're going to meet the scribes and the Pharisees and how they reject the testimony of Jesus and his works. And Jesus might already be aware of the fact that he's not gaining very much popular opinion among them. And so when he tells this person to go and present himself to the priest, he's recognizing that this person who he just cured of his leprosy is going to be an eight-day-long thorn in the side of the priest who's cleaning him. So the priest is going to examine this guy, and he's going to say, okay, how'd you get cured of your leprosy? He's going to be, I met Jesus of Nazareth. He cleaned me of my affliction. And this priest is going to, okay, whatever. 
And then he's going to have to wait seven days. And then on the eighth day, he's going to have to take sacrifices from this person whose consistent testimony is Jesus of Nazareth cured me of my affliction, saved me from my uncleanness. And, and I am a physical living witness to the fact that he can do these things. And so Jesus sends this person to the priest to go be, according to them, a, a proof to them. He says, go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof or as a testimony to them. You're going to be a witness to them of the things that I can do. And he charges him to tell no one, right? So he's an adhering to the law of Moses, and he's kind of double dipping and getting a pretty powerful testimony about his miraculous works to the priests. And the priests can't deny what happened, right? They have to accept the testimony of this guy. He's completely cured of his leprosy, and that won't change at the end of eight days. And so we see this, this curious command that happens there in verse uh, 15, or sorry, verse 14. And then in verse 15 and 16, you're going to see the prolific ministry that Jesus has as a result of these things. He says, but now even more, the report went about him abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to, a desolate, to desolate places and pray. Now, this reveals a great many things about us to Jesus. The first thing that you can recognize here is Jesus is not primarily concerned with a healing ministry. That's not what he's about. And we dwell upon this a great many times. Every time we really encounter it, we try to underscore this. But he doesn't primarily consider himself a healer. He is a healer, and he's revealed in Luke's gospel to be so. But his whole ministry is not a total volume of healings that he can perform. Instead, it's, it's about these kind of specific encounters that he chooses and that he, he partakes in. And he does so, it's seemingly, on his own volition, on his own will. Sometimes he heals people, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he goes to certain towns, sometimes he doesn't. But he does it all according to the will of God. He's kind of being guided and directed by the Holy Spirit to do these things. And so there's great crowds that gather to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he doesn't heal all of those people. In fact, in, in verse 16, it tells us that he actually withdraws from time to time and goes to desolate places away from all these crowds and he prays. And in that, we get kind of a picture of what makes Jesus's ministry so profound. It's not his techniques, it's not his tactics. It's the fact that he has perfect relationship with the Trinity. He is at perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit who dwells in him. He's in perfect relationship with God the Father who he withdraws and prays to. And that sums up why his ministry is so successful. And if, if you are, are interacting in the world and you are trying to wonder why you can't have the kind of gospel influence that you're trying to have in your workplace and your relationships, I want to ask you this question. Like, do you pray and do you spend time alone with God the Father to recharge your batteries to go out into the world? Because God's not going to honor just any kind of religious-looking activity that mirrors what the church does or mirrors gospel presentations. Jesus withdraws and prays with God. And if the Son of Man needs to commune with God, and he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit inside of him at all times, then certainly you and I need to withdraw and recharge and to be alone with God in prayer. It reveals something to us about the nature of what it takes to have a ministry that goes forth and spreads to the ends of the earth. It's what you see in the book of Acts where they, they commit themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer. Those are their two priorities. And they, they delve out all these other responsibilities, but their two priorities are the preaching of the word and prayer. And in our lives, we go forth and, uh, we, go forth and we are witnesses to God's truth. We need to be regularly saturated with God in relationship with him on our knees before the king in prayer. 
And that's something that we can learn from Jesus about how we can operate in our ministry as we are each called to our own, in our own way to ministry. So how do we put this whole uh, text together? Verse 12 all the way through verse 16. There's, there's a great many ways in which we can make application, but really the, the thing I want to go to is a, is a passage in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, we're going to be in verse 6 of that passage. And I mentioned earlier the primary problem of sinners is not so much the fact that we are sinners, but also the fact that God is holy. But God isn't just holy, he's also gracious. And this account reveals that about Jesus. He reveals that God is a gracious God. But Jesus isn't the first time that God reveals himself to be gracious. The Old Testament God reveals himself as just as gracious as the God of the New Testament. And that's not a coincidence because they're the same person. They're the same God, they're the same deity. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, you're going to see this. In the Lord's revelation to Moses, he sees him on the mountain, he passes before him, and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses' response to this revelation of God is he bows his head towards the earth and worships. Very similarly to the response of this leper when he encounters Jesus for the first time. He bows before him, he worships, and then he requests and he petitions to God. And the reason I want to go to Exodus 34 in this text is because I want to examine what it says here about a God who is somehow totally forgiving, totally gracious, totally slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and yet who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's a profound problem. That's a profound revelation about who the character of this God is. And this leper doesn't know it, but Jesus knows it when he heals him. That the sacrifices that this leper is going to go offer to the priest their time is running out. He's going to go, he's going to sacrifice two birds, he's going to sacrifice maybe a, a lamb if he can afford to, and he's going to participate in this ritual cleansing for seven days in accordance with the law. But the time of that law is quickly running out. It, in fact, in a matter of a few years, that law is going to be completely irrelevant. And the leper doesn't know that, but Jesus knows it. And when Jesus cleanses the leper, when he heals him, ultimately what he's doing is he's pointing to the fact that he is going to be the person who stands in the place and bears the weight of the uncleanness. And rather than the leper being cast out, Jesus is going to go and be cast out. And the leper is going to be welcomed into the community. But Jesus is going to bear upon him the weight and the guilt of that leprosy. Because God cannot leave the guilty completely unpunished. He's not going to, leave, he's not going to clear the guilty. He's not just going to let them get, them get off without atoning for their sins. And if you remember in Leviticus 14, it says that the atonement is made, there's a sin atonement, and it, it, there's the shedding of blood that happens. And all of that points to Jesus. In fact, many people would speculate that the two birds that are offered, one of them is killed and the other one is dipped in the blood of the dead bird, and the live bird is then sprinkled on the man and then let free to go fly. And it paints a very similar picture to the scapegoats in Leviticus 16, where you have the day of atonement, and you have one goat that has the sins put on him and is killed, and the other goat has the sins put on him and he's cast out into the wilderness. 
And people would say that this, this paints the picture of the dead and then the risen Christ. The, the Christ who dies in the place of sinners and then the Christ who resurrects and lives a new life to show that these sinners die to themselves and they live to God. And that these, these sacrifices all point to the same thing. And this isn't new at the time of Jesus. In fact, the Israelites have been told to expect this kind of revelation from God in the entire Old Testament. So Jesus heals this leprous man. He, he cleans him of all his leprosy. And he, he fixes his spiritual ostracization from the rest of the Israelite community. And the leper doesn't know this. Jesus knows this. And later we're going to understand how Luke reveals this to us. That it's profoundly Jesus who's going to be responsible for taking upon all of the things he cures other people of. When Jesus is on the cross, he's paying the full weight of the sin of all the other things he ever healed people of. He does all those healings on the basis of the fact that he's going to pay the sin punishment on the cross. If he didn't do that, it wouldn't be fair for him to remove that kind of sin because God can't just clear guilty people. And a leper is someone who's profoundly unclean before God. And Jesus does all of these things almost at unawares of the rest of the people around him. But he doesn't just stop doing that in that day and age. And he didn't just start doing that and stop at a certain period of time. He continues to do that today. He continues even today to offer out this offer of being made clean by interaction and relationship with him and to just come to him and he can, he can resolve your uncleanness. If you go to any other source, as the law tells us, you go to anything else, you're going to make it unclean by your interaction with it. But you go to Jesus, he can touch you and he can make you clean because he has totally paid for the, for the punishment of all the sins. He's totally paid the debt of the uncleanness that you bear. And the law tells us explicitly that there's nowhere else that you can go. Atonement is made by the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, for the removal of the stain of guilt, for the making clean of the things that are unclean. And then, then some things are passed through fire, some things are passed through water, but all of it is pointing to this amazing picture that Jesus, in his body, bears the full weight of all sins ever committed. He, in his body, bears the full weight of the sins that he is going to redeem and he's going to take people unto himself, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And when he redeems them, he doesn't just do that and let them get off almost like kind of doing it under the, under the table payment. He's not just getting by on some scam that he's running with God the Father. He does so by legitimately paying for sins. He pays the full weight of those sins. And that's profound for us to know because if he can do that, there's nothing that we should be uncomfortable bringing to him. The leper goes with the full weight of his leprosy to God. He falls on his face and he begs to be healed. Not expecting healing, not demanding it, knowing how unworthy he is, but he does it anyway. And you and I are much the same. We need to go, not with the kinds of sins we're okay bringing to church, and we're going to keep the big dark ones in the closet. We need to go with the full weight of our sins before the Lord of glory. No one else. No one else can absolve you of your sins. Only God can do that. Only God has done that. But he's the only one who can deem you to be clean. Because not only is Jesus the one who cleanses, he's also the great high priest. So ultimately, he's the one you go to for a declaration of being cleansed. And that's the kind of world we live in where we can go to him with everything. He's paid for everything. He's gracious. He's steadfast. And it's not that he is slow to forgive us. It's that we're slow to confess our sins. But he immediately heals the leper. And he immediately cleanses us of our brokenness. And so we need to, as a church, as a community, as people who are redeemed for God, regularly practice the confession of sins. We've been freed from the punishment of sin. We still wrestle really with the power of sin. One day we'll be freed from that. 
But as we wrestle with the power of sin, we need to regularly take our sins before God. So as we become unclean, he can make us clean once again, clean anew. Because he, as, as soon as we, we ask and we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And he models that for us in this miracle. This is a real miracle that happens, but it has this parable-like nature to it where it tells us about who he is and what he comes to do. And that's, that's important for us as Christians, but it's also important for those of you who don't have a relationship with God. It's important for those of you who don't yet have this kind of intimate interaction with God because you'd be like the leper who goes to Jesus and doesn't acknowledge the leprosy. You just kind of want to confess some other stuff. But there's this profound sin problem in every single person. Everyone has leprosy. The difference between a leper and a non-leper is the leper can't hide what, he, what he's carrying. A sinner maybe can hide it for some period of time. Eventually it'll come out. But all of us have this sin problem. And we all carry it. And unless you take that to God, you carry that forever. And one day, God will come as the just judge. He's not going to be slow forever. He's slow and he's patient, but one day, he will punish all sin. And he will do so justly. And in a way that none of us can say that was an unjust kind of punishment that he did. And so the way to escape that kind of punishment is to go to a God who saves us from our sin. A.W. Pink says it this way. He says that so many modern evangelists claim a God who saves people from hell, but not a God who saves people from their sin. Jesus is a God who saves people not so much from the punishment of their sin, certainly from that, but he saves them actually from their sin itself. He doesn't just save people from the long-term effects of their sin. He saves them from the actual uncleanness that their sin produces upon contact with those people. And you and I need to recognize that because we are not confessing the consequences of our sin to God. We confess our actual sin to him, recognizing that our hearts are broken, they are wicked, they actually desire sinful things quite a bit of the time, and we need to regularly be in the habit of confessing those things before God. And being like the leper who falls on his face before God and simply with with no shame, worships God, praises him, and says, please heal me of my condition. And if you've never had that kind of interaction with God, you certainly need to. You can't hide it. And for for no length of time will the Holy Spirit allow you to escape that. He's going to press you and press you and press you and pursue you until one day you do cave. And that is the promise of God that he is faithful and just, that he is pursuing sinners, he's pursuing unclean people. And really all of us are those unclean people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the revelation of your Son through your Word and how Jesus is the one who makes us clean. Lord, if it were not for the law, we would not know the full weight of our sin, but because we have the law, we know in how many different ways and categories we fall short. And Lord, if it was not for the revelation of your Son and the the means of salvation, we would not know how to escape our sin and the punishment that comes with it. But thanks be to God that you have revealed to us sovereignly through your Holy Spirit, through the writers of old, through your Son manifest in this world, the means by which we can escape our sin, the means by which we can escape this curse that it it just flows in and through our bodies. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us not to uh, live pathetic lives, but to live redeemed lives, to live kingdom lives that honor you, that worship you, that bring about your glory manifest on this earth as people who are on mission for you. 
So Lord, I pray that if there's any sin among us that is hindering our ability to be on mission for you, that you would bring that to the forefront of our mind. That your Holy Spirit would bring about conviction, repentance, confession, and healing. Because you offer all of those things because you have purchased them for us. Lord, I pray that we would not be slow to approach the throne of grace because of our own disbelief. But Lord, that we would believe every single word on the page of Scripture where it says that you are a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in your steadfast love. Lord, may your grace be upon us this evening as we continue in our worship of you. Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.